Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 8, 2014, and this is episode 1383 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday, so you've got just me, and you've got me in a unique thought experiment today. Um, I floated this yesterday. I got enough feedback on it that I thought there was interest. So I'm going to do it. It's called the Forest Market Garden Concept today. So this is uh, growing essentially a small forest garden style orchard. And when I say small, I'm talking one, two, three-ish acres. But for the intention of making a profit and combining it with things like a CSA or community supported agricultural model. Um, I think that even if you don't want to do that, you'll get a lot of value out of today's show if you want to grow your own food. Because this is a completely unfinished idea. Okay, so number one, uh, it's a lesson in developing business models. So if you like business, you've got that. Number two, I have put this morning quite a bit of research in just into fruiting times to look at how to stagger a harvest for as long a period as possible. And that work's not done yet, but there's a basic understanding of the different types of fruits and the different ripening periods available to them so that a person that just wanted to build a small backyard orchard for themselves could create the largest flow of productivity from a perennial system across the board. There's a lot more to be done, though. And this is not what I usually do. Um, I do sometimes float ideas and things like that, but I don't usually give you this much on something so incomplete. But I thought that would be interesting today because a lot of the things that I have done over the years um, and you've seen come to fruition went through this process. And a lot of things I started out with, this is a really good idea. And you know, a week later, well, that's not really a good idea at all. Uh, I haven't gotten to that point where you make that call yet. Uh, to whether or not this is as viable as I think it is. Um, my my gut on this one is very much so. In fact, I think it makes a ton of sense. But yet, it's not done yet. It's not, it's not happened yet. And I think that it might be beneficial to those of you that want to develop thinking, planning, and critical skill, anal critical, uh, and critical skill analysis technique to see how I think this way as well. So, It'll be interesting. I'll tell you, you'll find problems with my thoughts because they're not done yet. And you'll find a lot of, well, you should add this or you have to consider that because it's not done yet. And you'll have certain things that you may bring up that, yeah, I'm thinking about that, but I couldn't fit it into today's show. So we'll see. It'll be fun. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. And sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors are just awesome folks. Uh, they are perpetual students and perpetual teachers. Frank actually requires all of his students to take training from other schools every year to continue their development professionally. And uh, every single person from this audience that's been to Fortress Defense and trained with Frank and his instructors has had nothing but glowing, glowing things to say about how fantastic the training is. Remember the gun operator triangle of efficiency. There's the weapon, the ammo, and you, the operator. The operator's the linchpin. You can purchase the weapon, you can purchase the ammo, but you have to participate in the training. 
If you want the right guy to t help you do that, check out FortressDefense.com. Next up today, backyard food production. Hey, that's what we're going to talk about today. Turning your backyard into a food production machine. You want to see an incredible array of techniques. Marjorie Wildcraft has done just that. Her DVD series called Growing Your Groceries will show you how to produce everything from carbohydrate crops to perennial systems to protein and meat production. Check it out today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the year that was the episode, 1383. Uh, once again, I have a uh, tough decision to make. I have the lesson of Lowenbrau and the Bastille and the Key. Um, I'm a beer drinker and a brewer, and I really want to read you guys the lesson of Lowenbrau from Alex Shrug at TSPWiki.com today for the year 1383, but I'm not going to. I'm going to read the Bastille and the Key because there's some interesting things there that I think are a little more historically linked to the United States in some ways. In case anybody was worried, the construction of the infamous Bastille has been completed. Currently, it is a fort defending the eastern approach to Paris. It will become a prison for the upper class shortly before 1659. Compared to other prisons, the Bastille will not be too bad. One will be able to find a game of cards or billiards, and smoking is allowed. But over time, the Bastille will get a bad reputation, primarily because the king will round up subversive writers. This tactical error predates Mark Twain's amorphism. Never pick a fight with people who buy ink by the barrel. After the storming of the Bastille in 1789, the Marquis de Lafayette will send the Bastille key to George Washington, first handing it to Thomas Paine and eventually reaching Washington himself. The key to the Bastille remains on display at Mount Vernon. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these awesome segments together for us. Lafayette was the French general, a nobleman who fought by George Washington's side during the American Revolution, and he is the same guy that Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. is named after. A statue of Lafayette is at the corner of the park. There are three others, one of which is Brigadier General Thaddeus Kuzikaiko of Poland, the man who constructed the fortifications for West Point with this debt of honor, One wonders why the U.S. does not have a close connection with Poland as it does with France. It's a lot going on there. One, the I have to say this, you know, as a deist, the key of the Bastille was handed to George Washington by Thomas Paine, who is truly the founder of modern deism, which is quite interesting. And there's many that believe Washington himself was a deist or not quite as practicing in faith as that he was uh, rumored to be at the time, and politicians do what politicians have to do, even Washington. Um, that's kind of interesting. Lafayette, of course, this is why I would answer Alex's question, why don't we have the relationship with Poland that we do with France? Um, it, was, it was France that needed the U.S., at least in their view, in our early times in a war with Britain, and the U.S. stayed out of that war. Um, later, the U.S. ended up with its own problems with Britain, the War of 1812. Um, and France always had a little bit of a like chip, like, hey, we helped you with your revolution, and then you stayed out of our war, basically, and, and, and it wasn't helpful to us after we had, you know, sacrificed and done to help you and sent General Lafayette. Well, many, many years later down the road, there was a great war called World War One, 
And eventually the United States came and joined the side of the Allies at the time, of Britain and France and other nations. And there was a colonel. Uh, this is often attributed to General John Pershing, but it's not General Pershing. It was Colonel Charles E. Stanton of the United States Army in World War I who visited the tomb of the French Revolution and American hero, Marquis de Lafayette. And this is what the actual quote was that was said by Charles Stanton as the U.S. was now in France fighting on the side of the French in the Great War. America has joined forces with the Allied powers, and what we have of blood and treasure are yours. Therefore, it is that with loving pride we drape the colors in tribute of respect to this citizen of your great republic. And here and now, in the presence of the illustrious dead, we pledge our hearts and our honor in carrying this war to a successful issue. Lafayette, we are here. So that, I think, is a bigger part of why we have this modern relationship with France compared to Poland. Of course, after World War II, the Iron Curtain fell. Poland ended up on the other side of it. Um, and France ended up in NATO, which made them a strategic ally through the Cold War. Additionally, when we joined World War II, we landed in Normandy. We once again fought for the liberty of France. Um, and in the post-war, of course, we were involved with the rebuilding of France, whereas the Soviets had Poland. So I think that it's not about the original relationship so much as it's about the so, you know couple hundred years in between that have something to do with our modern uh, relationship, but I mean France has jacked with U.S. currency quite a bit, including recently, and Poland's never done that. Of course, Poland's really never had the ability to. Anyway, with that, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. So today, I want to talk to you about again what I'm calling a forest market garden, and I get to claim that. I think like Paul Wheaton gets to claim Wolfati, like I get to claim modern survivalism. I think I get to claim the forest market garden. I've never heard anybody say it. Ever before, I could be wrong. I certainly don't think the uh, the concept has ever been fleshed out in the way that I'm going to talk about developing it as a business model today. But let's talk about what a market garden is. A market garden is something I brought up in episode 1379. And if you haven't heard that episode, you might want to listen. You don't have to, but you might want to listen to it before you listen to the rest of this one. Because I went through a lot of the marketing and business concepts that I won't be rehashing out today. But in that episode, I said, hey, one of the things that you can do to get up into a productive, uh, profitable model really quick on a homestead scale situation is putting you know, a half acre to two acre market garden. And what a market garden is, just what it sounds like, it's a small farm, a small vegetable farm designed to produce produce for market um, and to generate sales either through direct sales, through uh, restaurant sales, through co-op sales. And the best way that we've seen people be successful with this is with a community-supported agricultural model, which means that the, the citizens of the community decide, yes, I want to do business with this farm, and it's going to cost me X dollars a year for a share in the CSA, and I'll get whatever I get each week during the harvest season. And 
that that was really a great model because it gave you predictable cash flow, and that was the holy grail of any business, to be able to say, this year we have baseline revenue of X. It's here, it's already there, and we can we can budget our development, our, our additional marketing, and everything else we're going to do based on the knowledge that we have at least this baseline revenue. And a couple people commented about, oh, what's this gentleman's name? I, I said, I kind of butchered his name yesterday and said, blah, 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 which sounded derogatory, and it's not. I just, this guy's name doesn't stick in my head for some reason. Jean-Martin Fortier, who wrote The Market Gardener, and said, hey, you know, this guy's talking about kind of what you're talking about. Don't you think this is valid or whatever? Like, I, I know that guy, sort of. I know of him anyway, and that is, his work is a big part of why I was recommending that. People are like, you got to read his book and check out his website and his interview here and all. So I'm like, you know, I'm finished with Mark Shepard's book now on restoration agriculture. I was going to read something totally different than agriculture, but fine, I'll get the market gardener from, uh, from Jean Martin. And I ordered it on my Kindle and I started reading it. And I like it. I think that if you want a market garden, you couldn't find a better plan. Uh, you couldn't find a better remote mentor. Uh, you couldn't find better advice. You couldn't find a better breakdown of the financials and what it really takes and the good side and the bad side, both and, and everything else than this book. It's probably the best that there is that I've ever seen for this concept. But as I'm reading it, it's like, Blah, 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 soil amendment, blah, 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 plow, blah, 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 tool, blah, 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 dig, blah, 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 irrigate, blah, 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 weed control, you know, successional planning and planning and planning and planning and planning and planning and harvest and planning and harvest and planning and harvest and starting seeds. And basically you get a couple months off in the wintertime when it's too cold to grow anything. And for a lot of us, kind of tempted to work through that. If you live down here in the south anyway, we could grow 12 months a year. And as I'm reading this, I'm starting to think, this sounds like a lot of work. And it's a lot of work in harvesting, which you're going to have. But it's also a lot of work in planning. It's a lot of work in soil prep. It's a lot of work in reed control. And it's a continuous input system. They're very proud of a profit margin ranging between 40 and 60%. Uh, and they're making good money, $150,000 a year. Okay. Well... If you do the math on a 40% profit margin on $150,000 a year, uh, you start to see something there. It's a, a net of $60,000. Right? So a net of sixty in, 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 in income, well, that's like $70,000 in expenses. And if you flip it around, you still got, you know... 60,000, 70,000 in income and 60,000 in expense. It's a lot of expense. Now they do have a full-time and a part-time employee. So you're going to pay those people pretty well and they're going to cost some money. So that could be a significant portion of it. You're not making enough money to do healthcare, but he's in Canada and they, everybody gets healthcare for free or whatever nonsense they say about it. So I guess that's not as big a deal there for the, for the small business person anyway, except the cost of living. But in the end, what I'm saying is there's a significant ongoing expense. So he has this kind of get-off-the-ground budget of about 40k, which makes perfect sense. But then this ongoing cost seems pretty high. And if you have a system where the primary workload for an employee is harvest, well, then you could have a person of just about any stripe trained on how to harvest certain things very, very quickly. 
And you could use seasonal labor for harvest the way big agriculture does in, in, in a similar way. Uh, and a lot of the harvesting is during the summer when there's all of these things called children that don't have anything to do with themselves except play video games that could probably use some work experience. So at least in the main part of summer, there's an abundant ability to reach out into your community and bring these children in to do harvest where they might not be quite skilled enough to trust them with gardening at the full level. You can say, that's what it looks like when it's ready to pick, pick that, put it in this box, and they either work out or they don't. So I started thinking about all of those things together, the inputs, the expense, the, 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 the availability of seasonal labor, if you can find kids that actually want to work, uh, and you might not have that, the ability to phase into it. And I started thinking to myself, why, why in the hell... Do I want to grow broccoli and tomatoes when I could grow apples and pears and berries? And the answer to that question would be, if I was going to do this myself, I don't. I don't want to grow broccoli and kale and lettuce and mescaline. I want to grow trees that do most of the work themselves that produce a deciduous leaf fall and provide a lot of their own soil amendments, that shade out weeds to the point where there's less need for weed control as they establish themselves, uh, that propagate uh, easily into new trees and expand my operation from what I have, uh, that I can design a system uh, where I have harvest from like May to November, right? Because May to November, is, and then you've got May is light and November is light, And then so you've got June to October with heavy work. So you've got June to October with heavy work, May and November with light work and, you know, maintenance. And then the rest of the year, kind of sort of off. That makes a lot more sense to me. And then to not be in competition with every single other person that gets this idea of market gardening. And to have less of a commodity aspect about what you're doing. And to have greater shelf life of the product that you're picking so that it's less critical to immediately get it to market. Though you want it there pretty quickly. And to have additional things that can be done with that product. And to have, if you have a surplus, maybe a product that's a little bit easier to move in the surplus market. You know, a bushel of plums, there's a lot of ways to move that compared to a basket of lettuce that has to be moved really, really quickly. Plums have a little bit of a storage life. Lettuce has a very, very, very short storage life without a lot of effort to keep it stored. Okay, So with all of that, I'm like, this is really the way to go. Why isn't anybody doing this? And I'm sure somebody has small orchards somewhere doing this, but probably not in the way that I'm going to lay it out today. I know there's one big one, 20-some-odd acres up in Canada, again, the Permaculture Orchard uh, DVD that just came out chronicles this, but it's really not the way I would do it. It's it's not intensively planted. It's not intensively managed, and you can scale it down and make it more intensive, but I would put it this way. That orchard is to what I'm talking about as a conventional vegetable farm. Don't think soy and, and corn and, and stuff like that. Think conventional vegetable farm. 40 acres, 50 acres, conventional vegetable farming with tractors, etc. And then scaling that down to the market garden. Now let's take the commercial orchard of 20, 40 acres and let's scale it down to the homestead size in a CSA model. That's what I'm talking about. And I don't know that anybody's really doing that 
Uh, and if they are, I want to know about it. Okay, I won't be hurt. I think that I can take this model and, and flesh it out and improve it. Now, what's the downside? Well, the downside initially is startup costs could be higher because trees are expensive. But I'll talk about ways to mitigate that here in a bit. The other downside and the bigger downside is that this is a system that you're really going into your first substantial harvest probably three years into. And if it's expensive to phase into, and let's say you're going to phase into an acre and a half of production, which may or may not be enough to run 100 CSA shares. I don't know. I mean, that's another thing. This is I'm telling you, this is an incomplete idea, and I haven't done the yield calculations on trees as they mature and how big they can be and what the spacing has to be and how much control and how much pruning time and all these other things. I have not factored this stuff out yet. So I'm not sure if that's enough, but let's just use that because it's a round number and easy to understand. If I do a half acre this year, a half acre next year, and a half acre in the third year, like staggering a CD for interest rates, at the end of the third year, I've got pretty good production on my first year, but I'm still now two years away from it in my last piece model. That does give me time to ramp up, but that actually means... That before I've got the full acre and a half, if I stagger it out that far, and I probably am going to have to, I'm at five to six years before the land is in full productivity. And even then, I've got a much more mature system on this half acre than I do on the last half acre installed. But I've also developed a system where if I have a five acre property, I can keep developing a half acre a year. And my cost of development will go down. And a lot of the things that I need for establishment can be reused as we move forward. And I'll talk about some of this stuff today. Um, but the downside is the time to profit. It takes a lot less time to grow a tomato plant than it takes to grow a plum. And it's just a fundamental reality. It just takes longer. And so that's a big downside. The other downside is there is work... Beyond what people think. Tree grows fruit, pick fruit, done. Well, not so much, right? Some of the fruit is high up. You have to prune it to keep it down. You have to maintain your trees. Trees in this environment over time do die. So some of it has to be phased out and replaced over time. Um, it, it, it does have susceptibility to pest insects and things like that. Though a lot of that can be mitigated truly just with polyculture There is need for soil amendments. I don't think it's anywhere near the soil amendment needs that a garden has, a typical garden, you know, market garden has. But you're going to need to establish that. You're going to need a piece of land that's got a relatively pleasing layout to it. Uh, if you are going to do this on a couple acres, it's not going to be easy to do it on really steep land for a lot of reasons. Right, So you need relatively, not necessarily flat, but not super steep land. You, to ideally, you need deep soils. I have three acres here. This model probably won't work for me because how shallow my soils are. So you need good soils. Um, you need to, again, like with the, the stuff I talked about last week, you need reasonable proximity to your market, especially for a CSA model to work. My belief is the best way you can build a CSA model is is if you're doing it right, other than to go get stuff or because you want to, you should never have to leave your property. Your customers should come to you and pick up their product. I, I think that is the, the optimal way to do things. And if you're marketing right, 
you should be able to make this so convenient to your customer that they don't mind it. Um, I want to talk a little bit here about how you can effectively market this in a way that people I don't think normally think of. So I don't know what the price of this thing is yet. I don't know what the total production of this thing is yet. But let's say you wanted to make $100,000. That's that's your goal. You want to make $100,000. You'd have to you have to sell 100 shares at $1,000 a piece to get $100,000 in sales. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, but you might break it down into a payment plan and spread out your cash flow anyway. So you could break that into four payments of $250 to be paid once a quarter through the year. Or you could break it down more into four payments over four months, January, February, March, and April, um, so that you have the revenue as you go through your productivity. I don't know. It's up to you how you market it. The other way you could make, let's, let's set our sights a little lower, say $50,000 in income off of this would be enough for you to be able to do it and begin growing it full time. Okay, now we only need a hundred at five hundred dollars. And we have a fifty thousand dollar income on a system like this. And remember that's a baseline guaranteed income. That's because you if you produce more than goes to your CSA, you can go elsewhere. But I want you to think about this differently than most people do. The, the biggest objection I hear to CSAs from the consumer side is, well, I'll give this person the money, and what if they have a bad year and I don't get much? You're farming too. You're risk sharing with the farmer. And the reality is that there's enough knowledge about CSAs out now that that person's not your problem. That person's just not your problem. The, the key is to be finding people that when you're in that first, second year of production are willing to risk share with you early. Because once you have a system like this functioning, you can just, sh this is our basket this week. It's a much easier sale. But I want you to even think about going high, $1,000 a year. Again, this sounds like a lot of money, but how much money is it really? It's $19 a week. It's $19 a week. But that's not really a fair way to look at it. Let's look at it a little bit differently. Let's say your main production is over six months. Well, it's $40 a week, 40 bucks a week. Now, think about the consumer you're selling to here. This is why you want peripheral additional product for the guy who comes in and just wants some apples or uh, some berries or something like that that wants to buy one off. The customer of a CSA is not a typical customer of, let's say, a farmer's market or something like that. It's a person that understands the concept, wants to be part of the concept, and is very concerned about high-quality local food. And they are more concerned about how the food tastes and how nutritious it is than what it looks like. It's important that food be visually appealing. But waxed apples look nice only because we've been conditioned to believe that. An apple with a little bit of a blemish here and there that's grown locally and has a really high nutrient coefficient, that's the product the CSA member wants. So you've got a customer that's willing to pay a premium for premium produce. And now on a six-month cycle, it's spread out $19 a month over the year. But in the, in the consumption period, that you're, you're primarily providing them with product for that six-month period, it's $40 a month. So then you have to ask yourself, if you're providing, let's say, a 
you know, a typical seven gallon ish Rubbermaid tub full of produce, if someone went to the store and bought organic at a minimum produce, would that tub cost 40 bucks? If you're just doing a value analysis. And the answer is yes, it absolutely would. And it's why I feel like 500, once you're into a high enough productivity level, might be too low. Now here's the thing. Most CSAs are also understanding of the fact that I could have this kind of yuppie-ish chick that likes this stuff, that makes good money and is willing to pay for it, but she lives in her one little one-bedroom flat apartment alone. And maybe she has people over once in a while, but in the end, she is feeding herself. And her cat doesn't eat vegetables, right? And then I have this group over here uh, that are just really concerned about their health. They'd like to grow their own food, but they can only grow so much. And they find out about CSA, and they say, that's what I want. And they've got you know, a mom and dad and three kids. So you might have a $1,000 a year share and a $500 a year share to allow people to participate at whatever level they want. So basically it's like a half share, if you want to think about it this way, or a two-share model. So you could have a one share is 500 bucks a year, but we recommend that you, if you have a larger family, consider doing a double share. And you can upgrade as long as we have room for you. All right, so it makes it flexible. All right, now, the reason this model is so cool, though, is it takes away all the haggling. It takes away all the tension. It takes away whether they can afford it this week or not. What ends up happening is all I do once a week is go see a friend and they give me food. Which means every little nice thing that you add to it that you didn't have to, and I'm going to give you some ideas for that toward the end of today's show, but every little thing like that increases the value and engages the relationship at a higher level. In other words, if you had bees on your property and you never said a word about bees, and you just did your honey harvest, and you end up with 15 gallons of honey, and you had 100 customers, and you decided to take one of those five-gallon buckets and divide it up in small portions and give everybody a little jar of honey this week, you just bought yourself more loyalty than you could have ever sold that honey for. And you've put it into the hand of your best customer. And you might sell more of it later. But you gave them that. You really didn't. You have to do cost analysis. You can't give away things that take your profitable operation and turn it break-even or unprofitable. But there's a lot of little add-ons that we'll talk about that you can do. And that won't work that way if they come in each week and go, I want a dozen eggs and what are, how much are your apples today? Right? But it works great that way when they walk in and go, what do you got this week? Here you go. Let's check this out. And I'm going to talk about some very cool marketing ideas as we go through with this as well. Relationship cultivation marketing. Ooh, somebody write that down. Relationship cultivation marketing uh, from the mind of Jack. Anyway, so that's part of why I think this model is so strong. Next, I want to talk about how would you maybe establish this and go and reduce your establishment costs. I'll go pretty quickly through this because um, I don't want to belabor Because, again, it's an incomplete idea with a lot of work left to be done. But the first thing you would do is probably establish a beachhead. So you might do that half-acre model. Or it might be a quarter-acre model. We, we, what we have to figure out as a design 
and a certain consistency in varieties and different plants and products. And I'll give you some things to get you thinking that way with different fruits and berries and some of their staggering potential, how long you can keep them producing. So by just jumping ahead a little bit to give you an example of what I mean there, we can, with different varieties of apples, we can be producing apples in most of the country from July until late October. They won't always be the same apples, but by picking a certain group and variety of apple, we can stagger that out. So if we ended up with eight varieties of apples for that stagger, we might actually go with nine to have one additional variety for redundancy, and we want to design those nine apples into the totality of the system along with eight plums and five cherries and seven apricots or whatever. So we develop a basic template And we build that design in the beachhead. That doesn't mean it won't change at all. Because we'll learn things as it grows. Like this, this one doesn't work like it's supposed to. Right? This doesn't produce like we expected. But by having that, we're going to build the seed stock for expansion. Because we can do a lot with grafting and cuttings. So that the first big hit is going to be the acquisition of all these plantings but we can do an awful lot of cost reduction down the road. And then we propagate and expand over time. Um, so by getting good at propagation, we now are able to expand our operation for less money. And we're also able to create additional peripheral income opportunities. Um, for instance, there's a gentleman in California, I can't remember his name, but he grows you know, several acres of jujube, which is a small apple-flavored type fruit, also known as Chinese date. There's several varieties, but there's primarily early variety and late variety. Early variety is eaten fresh. The late variety leaves left on a tree until it dries like a date, and it's very, very sweet. And that way you have a storable variety and a fresh-eating variety. It is extremely popular among Asian cultures who have a hard time finding it in the United States. He's developed an awesome, awesome market for this product. But all of his harvest comes from like July through August into September. That's it. Done. And that's fine. He has other things he grows, but he has that first jujube operation. That's it. Now, then in the fall, all of these trees start setting up these suckers from the roots. And these suckers are really, really thorny, even compared to the, the, the grafted jujubes. And they root out, and they're a big pain in the butt. So you have to get rid of them all. Well, as he starts getting rid of these things, he's realizing you can take them out with root attached to them. You can trim them off. I can take a branch off of this same tree, boom, of this known variety, and I can graft it, and that's a $30 to $40 tree. So he spends all winter grafting, selling trees. to the customers that are buying his product, which eventually will reduce how much product they buy, but it won't because they can plant one or two trees, and he's got thousands of trees. And I'm sure he's selling to people that don't actually buy his fruit as well. So by learning the propagation techniques, you open up that nursery component idea or even just certain trees that you propagate and sell to certain people, maybe even a wholesale relationship or something like that. So it's a multifunction stack thing. I think you have to put solid earthworks into this system. It may not look like your typical Jeff Lawton food forest, but if nothing else, key line subsoiling or shallow swales at equidistance. So I don't see this so much being a straight line orchard. I think it makes far more sense to work with the contours of the land, spread the water out, 
but I do see those contours being linear so that we can walk down a row and harvest. And we have to think about how to stagger our production through the system so that multiple things happen. So that, number one, when it's time to pick for mid-June, most of the stuff for mid-June is in one spot or in multiple clumps. So even though we're creating diversity, we're, 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 we're consolidating the harvest so that I'm not picking 10 apples off this tree and then walking halfway to the other side of the property to pick 10 more apples. So that I have clumps. And even as I expand in my phases, phase one, phase two, phase three, there's clumps within the phases. So I can go to clump one, pick most of my harvest. Clump two, pick most of my harvest. And instead of just picking apples, I'm picking apples, plums, apricots, blackberries. And that way I'm assembling my product for my CSA as I go. So I'm, I'm function stacking this as well. So there'd be a lot you'd learn with that, like pick the apples first because they're heavier and they'll squish the other fruit in the baskets or in the bins. Right? So you could, you could literally be bringing the product from the field already prepared for the customer. And you're not going to have a lot of washing to do because you're not using chemicals. You can advise your customer they should rinse all their product before they eat it. It will keep better if you don't wash it. And since you're not harvesting root vegetables and things like that, you're not, you're not hosing dirt off for appearances. Right? So you're literally going from tree to basket to customer. In an ideal situation, you, you know, you're picking Thursday evening and customers are picking up Friday morning. Or you're picking Friday morning and customers are picking up Friday afternoon. It all depends. You have to work that out as you go. But that situation makes a really, uh, good model. I think that I'm really, again, becoming a fan of these things called the Irapan. They're made by a company called Talia, T-A-L hyphen Y-A. They're in Israel. This morning I went to Talia's website, and it was hacked by some Muslim crazy guy or something with music playing and some statement or whatever. So maybe it has to do with the fact that it's an Israeli company. Maybe it's just one of these people that hacks any site they can get into. So they have to fix it. The good news is if you want to buy the product, it's marketed as Irapan in the United States. And I have a link where you can get them here in the U.S. because the Talia site is not much use to you anyway. Um, but Irapan. So my thought with these are is if I was going to put in let's say 200 trees in a phase. And I bought 200 of these things for four bucks a piece. I'm into it for 800 bucks. But if I can buy smaller, easier to plant trees that will establish quicker and do better with their root development because they develop most of the roots in place, and I can reduce my planting cost by at least $800 in, in buying plants because I can buy smaller plants. And then I reduce my planting time at the same time. If it's a break-even, it's a gain, and it can probably do better than a break-even. So it, let's say that my planning budget was going to be $12,000 uh, without the trays, and then I buy the trays for $800, but I reduce my planning budget to $7,000. Well, that's, that's a pretty good net gain there, right? So I also see those trays as being very, very effective in the developmental stages of a, of a tree for, let's say, two seasons, being able to be removed and then move to the expansion of another phase. And so far by looking at them, I think you'll get five or six years out of them before they really are going to kind of be like, yeah, it's time for these things to go away. And it might be longer. I don't know. They seem, they're, they're lightweight, 
they're not super thick, but they seem very well built. Uh, they seem designed to handle the UV light and things like that. So it seems like they could be used for multiple establishments before they've exceeded their life expectancy. So that's, that's kind of how I would use that system. Um, and I would do a lot of grafting, and I would start being creative with my grafting. Like one of the things Nick Ferguson turned me on to is everybody thinks of grafting this way. I get a rootstock and I get cyan wood. For those that don't know, rootstock is what it sounds like. It's roots that are known to be good disease resistant or a certain size or whatever, but it's a tree that would grow up out of a root, but I cut it, and then scion wood is, okay, there is an early Alberta peach right there, and I've got a peach rootstock. So I cut a branch at a certain time of year off of the peach tree, that's the scion, and I make a cut in the branch, and I make a cut in the rootstock that, that merge together, and that's my graft. I put them together, and I... I close them off with grafting tape and maybe grafting paint or wax on top of that. And then I have a tree, and then I grow that for a while in a pot or something like that, or a sand bed or something like that, and then at a certain time, for whatever reason, to it's a certain size, I either sell it or I plant it into the ground wherever I want it to grow. And that's how we take and make a clone, basically, of a known variety. And I think that figuring out what you can grow from seedling is a great idea here including apples and plums and other things that can be grown from seedlings. But for a certain consistency, you're going to have some grafted varieties in something like this. You might move more to some seedling stuff as you phase out into the distance and have some space to work on developing your own unique varieties. But the grafting works. But it doesn't have to be this bench grafting scenario. So you may not be, let's say we can't afford to plant phase two this year. Just don't have the money. Right, We're going to graft and do that later. Well, what if all the rootstock was in phase two, developing into big, thick, healthy roots for us? So the rootstock is cheap compared to the full tree. So what we could do for phase two is we buy the rootstock. We plant the rootstock as though it was the tree, and it will grow. It will just grow a variety that maybe we don't really want. It might have a bad taste. It might not be very productive, what have you. It's just the rootstock. It's designed to be, again, either size-controlling or disease-resistant or something. It's a known solid root variety. And then we clone onto it the name variety. So we plant the rootstocks. They come up. We go through in the fall and we cut the rootstocks, and at the appropriate time for whatever we're grafting, we take a scion from phase one, a pruning from phase one, and we graft it to phase two. And by doing that, we're effectively planting for the cost of the rootstock. And we can grow our own rootstocks if we really want to. It just may be, timeline-wise, not the best idea during the startup phase. But rootstocks can often be had for 2 to $4 a piece which is a lot less than $20 to $30 a tree. And it's a very effective way. And if that rootstock fails to establish that first year, I can pull that root out that's dead and replace it with another one and still graft there. It might be a little behind its buddies, but I haven't lost the whole tree. I've just lost the rootstock. And if I graft onto it and I lose the graft, I just graft onto it again. I haven't lost the rootstock. There's a lot of redundancy in there and a lot of cost reduction. And most commercial orchards, if they didn't do a lot of their own grafting, they wouldn't be able to do with it. Now let's talk about grafting 
and patented varieties. There's a lot of open variety plants. And there's two types of legal protections in the plant world. There's trademarking, which means absolutely really nothing from a propagation standpoint. And there is patenting, which does have a meaning. Okay, And it, it, it is something that can get you into trouble if you're especially in a commercial operation. Technically, if you have a patented variety tree and you make one in your backyard and plant it, you have broken patent law and you are subject to all the, the, the wrath of the state and the people on the other end of the patent with civil action. But you probably won't hear anything from anybody. If you go put a four-acre orchard in and you start grafting a lot of these patented varieties, sooner or later someone's going to figure it out and come after you and probably wait till it's worth something before they do. You want to sue somebody, you want them to have money when you sue them. Think about that. But we make such a huge big deal out of this in the, the, you know, the grapevines and the trees and stuff like that. Um, the reality is the reason they're patented is the end. And I'm not saying that I would patent my varieties. We've made a commitment to stay open source and open source protection for anything. We develop a perma ethos, but I can understand why somebody that puts a lot of work into something, a lot of money into it, And then says, okay, now that I've done this, anybody anywhere could just cut it and stick it on another root and it's going to grow, would want to protect their investment for at least a period of time. And everybody makes a big deal out about it, but most places will let you produce their licensed products for like a dollar a unit. So if it's something that really brings value to you, it's something that's highly marketable and will make you money, and you're going to put in a hundred trees of a certain variety or 50 trees of a certain variety, why not just pay the patent holder the 50 to 100 bucks? It's still less than going out and buying new trees. And, you know, different people have different rules. I'm going to be using a lot of information I've acquired from Dave Wilson Nursery, and I think these guys really are very, very committed to their customers, from the home gardener to the, the nursery to the commercial orchard to providing them a lot of information, not just a good product. And for orchards and nurseries, they allow you to graft their, their product uh, for a dollar a unit. But if you buy their rootstock, so if you're buying your rootstock stock from them, you can graft your brains out. They're totally okay with that. Because they're still getting some business from you. So you could either buy your rootstock from them or pay them a dollar a piece. Now, if you are a home gardener, um, what they say is it's not legal for you to pre-produce their product. So you either have to be in a retail nursery or a, a commercial orchard. I'm talking about building a commercial or orchard, smaller than typical, but it would certainly qualify as a commercial orchard. If you're doing it in your backyard, no one's really going to know. So it doesn't really matter that they say that. But, you know, I mean... Here's what they're really saying. I, I can't afford for you to send me $2 for the two trees you made. You have to be doing some level of quantity here. But, you know, you send them a check for $50 or $100 bucks or whatever it is, then, you know, you're good to go. There's not a lot. The people that do this don't have a lot of time to go out and inspect everybody and, and audit everybody and things like that. So it, it's on some level sort of kind of an honor system, and I think it's an honorable thing to do if somebody really did develop something uh, and you want to use it to, to work with them. Now, how does that relate to something like Monsanto? Uh, Monsanto has gone out and patented varieties that have been around for thousands of years. Monsanto is biogenetically engineered crap. 
And then Monsanto has claimed rights to their genetic material when it's cross-pollinated with other people's plants without their consent and actually done damage to it. So it doesn't. It's totally different. It's not even close to the same thing. Uh, and none of these people are really going around causing anybody any trouble. Now, trademark varieties, real quick before I move on. If you have a product that you see the TM with, so it says, Joe Blows Nectarine, TM. It is an open variety that he has played with a little bit or not at all and is trademarked and is marketing it as a brand. And that means you can take Joe Blow's Nectarine and you can make lots more of them and you can call them anything you want except Joe Blow's Nectarine without permission or paying him a fee or whatever he says you got to do to use his trademark. A trademark is not a patent. And there's no reason to be afraid of using a trademark variety plant Um But you would want to find out what is it really so that you know what you're working with. All right. So moving on, I want to talk about, like, just on the planning thoughts. And I'll move kind of quick through this. Just, to, But I wanted to give you an idea of how much you could spread out harvest. So I don't have individual name varieties for you, but I did go through a lot of the charts at Dave Wilson Nursery and elsewhere to find other things to get a sense. And this will change. It won't be quite as broad, perhaps, in your region, or your region might be a little bit broader. It depends, right? But apples. We can select, with different apple varieties, the ability to harvest apples from mid-July to late October. With plums, we can go mid-May to early October. With cherries, early May to late June. With apricots and crosses, like apricoms and stuff like that, uh, we can go from early May to early July, And then there's a couple varieties that will, will yield out in like mid-August. So we can go May to July, have a break, and then have another crop in August. Nectarines, we can go late May to late September. And peaches, we can go early May to late September. And pears, including Asian varieties, we can go late July to early November. Now, again, that's, that's basically saying we can go with something and multiple things from May to October, with our heavy production going June to September. And that's just with trees. Moving on to berries, which have the, the a lot going for them. Berries are quicker and easier to get up and producing. They're quicker and easier generally to propagate. And there's a tremendous variety of them that can make up a lot of variety in what you're handing to a customer. A small amount of berries may seem like, well, what value is there in this small handful of berries? But if it's four different small handfuls of berries with apples and pears, and all of a sudden it starts to have more value. So blueberries. With staggering, we can go May to July with blueberries. Blackberries, we can go June to August. And with the new Primacane varieties, we can bring up some in late September, early October, depending on the variety. I haven't seen how much production you really get from Primacane yet, and I haven't been able to look at a lot of research on it. They are all patented varieties, but uh, you can probably work out a deal to pay your patent price. And the nice thing about blackberry plants is even if you're just buying them, they're not that expensive. And there's a lot of open to reproduce varieties of blackberries as well. Uh, it's the primac it's some, there's more than just primacanes that are uh, patented, but all primacanes are patented. Raspberries, you've got mid-June through July, and then you've got mid-August through mid-October with raspberry varieties, including primacanes and others. With gooseberries and currants, you've got mid-June to mid-July. With strawberries, you've got everbearers, which 
you know, produced throughout the year. Now, I may just not have a really good environment for strawberries yet, but what I've seen out of Everbearers here is very little production. So I don't know how valid Everbearers are for commercial production. I've never really looked into it. June bearers have that big, heavy yield in June. And depending on your climate, your big yield in June bearers might be late May, be early June or mid-June, and you can stagger those to at least go across four to six weeks of even what they call June bearers. Uh, but they bear one big crop a year. Grapes, August to September. Wolfberry, uh, which is a great product. Wolfberry, goji berry, whatever you want to call it. Late June, all the way till the first frost. Elderberry, You might want to look at elderberry, and the last one I have for you, seaberry, is more of a little niche product to do some value adds with. But elderberry, July and August, and seaberry, you can stagger harvest at least early August to late September. I actually need to get with Ben Falk and find out how much we can spread out of seaberry harvest because he's like seaberry guru of the United States. So when you look at that, again, we're, we're really going May into November, but mostly May into October, and our heavy production you know, is June through September, which is a great time to be doing this harvesting, right? Because harvesting is not that physically demanding when you're harvesting things like this. Uh, and you have this incredible diversity. Imagine being able to provide to a customer items mostly through the summer. Some of them, they'll, they'll have their peak and valleys. Some of them will come and be gone for the rest of the year. But apples, plums, cherries, apricots, nectarines, peaches, pears, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, currants, strawberries, grapes, wolfberries, elderberries, and seaberry. And you may not be able to grow all those where you are, but there's a ton more than that that you can grow. And, it, I mean, you can just start looking at other opportunities for what can be, be grown. Um, and that, to me makes a lot more sense than tomatoes and, and arugula, right? Now, the thing is, with this type of system, you're going to find that some annual products do very well for you. Arugula, one clump of arugula, will produce a shit ton of seed, just a massive amount of seed. And I've carpet-bombed arugula and had it coming up everywhere and in the summer in the south it likes shade if you're growing a forest you have lots of shade it can be an understory annual and it wouldn't be something you provide often but remember what i said about the csa model everything that's there that was unexpected is like a gift so a few times a year a bundle of arugula and i'll talk about some marketing collateral to go with this as I, once I get some of these ideas out to you that you could do. Another thing would be perennial herbs. So if I plant sage, for instance, it's going to be good for my pollinators, good for my bees, good to detract from pests, very, very hardy. Uh, it's going to overwinter almost throughout you know 85% of the United States and come back year after year after year. It tastes great. It's a valid you know product. But if my CSA is getting a big bundle of sage every week, they're going to be like, dude, we've got enough sage. So we have to figure out something else to do with that. Oregano is another great perennial herb. There's a ton of herbs that we can grow in a perennial fashion. And we'll talk about what to do them in a minute. Uh, squash. If we are planting this orchard-style arrangement, um, 
even once it's heavily established, and even when there's quite a bit of shade, as long there's going to be sun through the whole thing because we have to leave enough space for our fruit to ripen. You can get two packs of butternut squash seed for your first year because you can save your seed after that and go through at the appropriate time of year to plant for you. And butternut's probably the most disease-resistant and pest-resistant squash out there and just pop those seeds in the ground in about 20 minutes just at various places throughout the whole place. Done. And if half of it dies, you don't care. If none of it grows, you're out five bucks. If some of it grows, tell you what to do with it in a minute. Um, summer squash, same thing. You can go through, you know, a couple packets of zucchini seed for a few bucks and plant zucchini throughout the property. So now you happen to have a good zucchini harvest this week. Everybody gets a zucchini or two in their CSA basket. I wasn't expecting it. And your, your stacking function, because when you're in the, the field, oh, there's zucchini now. Boom, 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 boom. It's not that much to pick. You're not picking gallons and buckets and buckets and buckets of it. You're picking 100 to 200 uh, zucchinis once or twice a season as add-ons. And then the plant dies and it just stays there. You don't have to recultivate it or anything like that. You can, As long as you can make a hole big enough to pick, stick the seed in the ground, an aggressive plant like a squash will come out from the understory and it will grow and it will compete with just about anything at the ground level. Okay, it'll just grow over top of, of things and provide shade environment where you can grow things like mushrooms. Um, but on some cool value adds, I'm also thinking dried berries. Uh, I mentioned wolfberry. Wolfberry, um, there's a guy at Phoenix Tears is the, is the brand of his wolfberries. Uh, really interesting story here. He's from Utah. And uh, I'll put a link to this little article here. But the article's called uh, uh, Profitable Wolfberries, and it's on uh, FarmShare's website. And the story is this guy, uh, Don Dogas, found his first wild wolfberry, or goji, while hunting on his friend's Utah ranch. So they think that most of these wild-growing goji berries are from when the railroads were being put in and Chinese immigrants did the work, and they ate a lot of these and spit the seeds out and frankly craft the seeds out and these very hardy variety of wolfberry has you know naturalized out there well he has a 30 foot row of bushes he started that with 15 plants and he gets 100 pounds of fruit a season so i wouldn't just do a row of them but you could but if you had them planted as an understory bush and you're gonna have to prune the hell out of them because they'll get big if you if you let them but they can be pruned to just about any size you want you can produce a couple hundred pounds of these things And if you dry them, they have a much longer storage life. And then they can be used to make basically a tea. And the leaves can be used to make tea. I'll leave it at that for a second. But drying certain things would be really easy to do. And you could dry a couple hundred of these with an caliber, you know, in four or five batches. And that way, now I'm going to stop because I want to go back through and, and talk about some of the things you could do. Mushrooms would be another value-added product that can be dehydrated. Uh, potentially reselling other local product in a cool way I'll tell you about in a minute, honey, things like this. All these are things that can be stacked into the CSA. And how much do you stack in? How much remains profitable and doesn't really take much extra work? And it, as you stack it in, can you raise your price without you know a bunch of rumbling and grumbling? And I find, as I've talked to people, interviewed people, watched documentaries with people, 
all the feedback that I get from producers who sell through CSAs say that their customers generally understand a price increase as long as it's not stupid. Because they understand what they're buying and who they're buying from. And just like their costs go up, they understand the producer's costs go up. You're getting out of the commodity world and you're getting into the niche market with this. So if you can start figuring out how over time to stack more value into your shares, you can slowly and reasonably increase the price and that lets you make more money. Therefore, you can maybe bring in a little bit more help and do less of the work yourself. So that's kind of my model here. Now let's go back through how to really put the cherry on the cake in a way that makes the customer feel loved and want to come back and do business with you forever and have a standpoint if you ever get into a position, like a guy I watched uh, a documentary about the other night where he's like, I think I'm going to lose the farm. He had a CSA, and his CSA people were like, it's not happening. It's not happening. They pulled together and helped him out with some, some level of contribution and helped him out with acquiring financing for the rest. Got his farm back together. Everything rocked on. He didn't go away because they were like, you're, de- you're not leaving. We're not losing you. That's the kind of loyalty you want. Here's how you start to do that. And here's how you ingratiate yourself to the point where the person you're dealing with won't shut up to the rest of everybody they know about how awesome you are. So one of the perennial herbs I talked about was sage. Now, sage has a lot of culinary uses, but the two biggest ones are sausage and turkey. Sage is just a wonderful ingredient in sausage. I don't think you can make really good sausage without sage and fennel, by the way. Um, But fennel, I can buy fennel seed and it will be fine. I can't buy fresh sage without spending quite a bit of money on it uh, from the store. And uh, it's because it doesn't keep well after it's been cut. It might be in those little, you know, what do you call them, skeleton packs or whatever at the produce section, a little... You know, a little clump of them for about five bucks or something like that. But I, you know, you don't just go to the store and buy sage. You buy dried sage. Dried sage sucks compared to fresh sage. I mean, it's just, that's the only way to put it. It sucks. Now, once a year in this country, at least nine out of ten Americans eat something. Turkey. Fresh chopped sage rubbed on turkey is the way, or one of the things that you rub on it, but the way to make a great turkey. It fills the kitchen with this incredible smell. It brings this great flavor. More of it goes when you make your gravy. It is the bomb. And if you're you're making your own sausage as part of a sausage dressing or stuffing for your turkey, you want sage for that too. So the week before Thanksgiving, a bundle of sage goes into the probably the last basket of the year. Okay, And we've also grown uh, some winter squash, hopefully butternut. The sage is a great ingredient in butternut soup as well. But the butternut is extremely flexible. It's basically a really hard, tough, badass pumpkin. It can make pumpkin cookies. It can make pumpkin cake. It can make pumpkin pie. It can be cooked as uh, just a baked squash, uh, braised. It can be just so many things you can do with butternut. It's a great plant. Most people don't buy a lot of it. They don't know how to use it, but it's a great plant. So in the last box, a full whatever is available of butternut to my CSA members, and sage goes in there. Now, a lot of people won't know how to use these things. So I'm going to have a blog 
for my CSA, and anybody that else wants to read it, by the way. And in that blog, if everybody picks up on Friday, on Thursday, I'm going to be telling them what they're going to get this week that's unique and different and things to do with it, including things like, here's a re here's three recipes for the butternut squash you didn't know you were getting this week. This will be our last one. We want to send you into the holiday season with this little extra bit of love from your farmer. All right? Here's what to do with the sage. These are two things that will be in your basket this year. Now, the thing about butternut squash is if you start harvesting that stuff in, like, August and you're saving it for that last basket, it's not a problem. I left one in a windowsill from October, and it didn't start to go bad until June of the next year. It's an incredible keeper. So as long as you have someplace reasonably decent to store it, you can keep it till then. If you have more of it than you can give away during that period of time, As part, you're, not, remember you're giving it away, but you're not giving it away. It's built into the price. You've, you've built this business model, right? But if you have more of that, then it can be sold or given or used or whatever. But now you've got this thing that you're kind of installing. Um, at the peak of zucchini season, when you're throwing some extra zucchinis in there, you throw three recipes for zucchinis. Are you going to be getting this this week? Won't you know what to do with it? Uh, same with the dried berries. So we dry the wolfberry. So we can then, because here's your problem with the CSA. You got this loopy harvest. So we know the wolfberry is going to be coming from about July till the first frost, whenever that is for you. We know there's going to be a lot of it. We know we can dry it, and we know once it's dried, it can stay for years. So we can make up little bags of dried wolfberry, different things that can be done with them. And in the time that we have a little bit of a weaker harvest for a week, we can supplement it with that. And we can also maybe that week put a little bundle of wolfberry leaves in there and tell them how to make wolfberry tea. And if that happened to be the time we dropped the bomb with the little thing of honey for sweetening it and a little bundle of mint that went with that and thoughts on herbal teas that week and the little blog entry for the week, what have we done now? See, this is the stuff that no one in this industry is doing right now. They don't think this way. You know, I talked, I'm not going to reiterate the mushroom thing, but the mushrooms, we can grow oyster mushrooms and strophoria mushrooms on coffee grinds. We'd have the customers bring the coffee grinds in, but we can dehydrate the mushrooms instead of selling them fresh. This lets us put them aside in a very shelf-stable shelf manner, and choose the time that we add them, and then we have certain things you can do with them. We might end up coming up with certain other things that we're producing that fit together. We could do things like this. I don't want to grow tomatoes in this, this model. I don't. It's too much work. It absolutely is too much work. But it's the number one crop of local growers, and there's tons of them out there. So if you found a local grower that was doing tomatoes, especially in the South, there's something that's hard to do, and that's to get tomatoes and cilantro to grow at the same time. You have tons of cilantro in the spring and in the fall, but almost none in the peak tomato season. So if you find somebody that's producing earlier, or, 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 or you play, producing those mid-season tomatoes, I'm, I'm sorry, the early tomato or the late tomatoes, and make a deal with them, and again, you got to find this first, and when you're pricing for the year, you build this into the price, Twice a year, I'm going to buy 400 tomatoes from you. Two for each of my customers twice a year. At that, at that particular week, the tomatoes and the cilantro go in together, and in the blog entry, there's a recipe to make something like pico de gallo or a salsa using those. And, and basically saying, get some jalapenos and garlic for yourself. 
right? Another thing that would be a really great model is an, is, is, is an annual that would be easy to grow in this system is basil. A basil plant left to go to seed, you can harvest gallons of seed off a few plants. And you can spread that out through everything, and maybe once a year you're taking a few nice bushes of basil and planting it with or putting it with a couple tomatoes acquired from another local producer and a bowl of garlic. And the garlic we can grow right in that system. And then we'll, we'll give um, a recipe that week for bruschetta. Right? So we have all these fresh things that are being put in there without a lot of extra work. And that lets us just keep exponentially increasing the value to the point where the person starts to feel like, I, I don't care what it costs as long as I can afford it. That's, that's the customer you want. You want the customer that feels that way about what you're providing. I, I don't care what it is as long as I can afford it. As long as it makes sense for me to have this, I, I want this. Uh, when Amazon raised the price of Prime, I didn't blink. Um, I get most of the stuff that I buy now that I can get on Amazon. If it's on Prime, and if it costs the same or less as it does in a store, I buy it from Amazon. Why would I leave my house? Why would I burn gas? Why would I deal with morons at the store? Why would I stand in line? Why would I be hot? Why would I be cold, depending on the time of the year? When I can point, click, order, and it shows up. There's certain things that we use monthly that's on Prime and on subscription that it just shows up every month. If you get five of those, they give you 20% off all your subscriptions. Hey! Right? So the cost of Prime is irrelevant to me. If they raise it to $1,000 a year, I'm going to start caring. But by jacking it up like 16 bucks or whatever it was a year, I don't have, I, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I do not care. And that's the customer you want. You want that customer feeling that way about you in this model. Um, some final thoughts on this though. This is not complete. I know this is viable. Um, The rough calculations tell me it's viable. The concept of when I go to the store and I look at what a bag of apples, just regular shitty sprayed nasty wax-coated apples costs and what a small thing of apricots cost or pluots or plums or, or what have you, uh, what a small little package of blackberries costs. Small little package of raspberries cost. It's insane. And the stuff I can't even find there, like elderberry, wolfberry, and seaberry, it's hard to even, for the person that's getting that as part of what they're doing, to, to understand it. And then the added things. And see, once you've done the recipes, you just keep reposting. So that's all kind of a one-time thing, but you can add stuff to that too. But it's one week, one, one, one entry a week into a blog that you have to do to service a customer during the harvest period. A lot of it could be pre-written during the downtime of the season and, and staged and planned and ready to go out and used throughout the rest of the year. Control-C, Control-V is your friend, right? Cut and paste. That added component, you know, if, if we look at something like currants, most Americans don't even know what to do with a current anymore. They don't know what it is. And you've got white, red, and black current, and they all have different uses. So being able to put, put in, hey, this week you guys are going to be getting currants, Or maybe the current thing it might mean a little bit more thought. So you might say, the currents look great this year. Uh, not this week, but next week they'll be coming. Here's some ideas for how you can use them when they come. And we're not even touching yet some of the, the peripheral product that can go into something like this. Gummies or autumn olive. They're both great fruits. Most people are not even aware of their existence or they see them as an invasive species. 
right? Not really the Gumi, but the, but the autumn olive is seen as an invasive species. There's all kinds of little niche shrubs that can go in here. And you don't have to have a big production per unit if it's combined with all these other things. So I know this is viable, but it's still far away. There's things we didn't talk about today that I'm going to wrap up without getting too deep into, but things like this. On a piece of land, you're going to look at the landform, and there's going to be places where cold air will settle in frost pockets. And that is not the place to put your early variety trees because they're more susceptible to having their leaves knocked off. So things like that have to be factored into the design. A conventional permaculture design, we have a zone one, zone two, zone three. This is pretty much zoned as one big thing. It's more of a time zoning. So you have to think, if I'm going to have these pockets that are going to primarily be a pocket to be harvested uh, from you know the last week of May to the first week of June, what goes in there and where should that zone be within the whole thing? You know, analyzing the sectors, thinking about getting equipment in and out, keeping the weedy growth down in between the rows. You need space to be able to work here. You can't, I don't think this model works really good as your conventional crowded out closed canopy food forest. You, you need space and you probably want the space between your rows, whether they are straight line or staggered rows or whether they are, uh, a swale or key line system, uh, lines, probably big enough to be able to run a mower through there. Because that's just the easy way to control things. If they're wide enough, you can run a mower through there if you have to. You can put livestock through that if it's in the plan for you. I think eggs go great with this. The eggs take the CSA to almost a year-round model. The eggs are your lost leader product. Uh, and the eggs make sure there's something cool in every basket all through the, the harvest. Um, you know, But producing 100 dozen eggs a week is a lot of chickens. It's, it's, it, you know, does that really work for you? I don't know. You know, you have to think about that. How much land do you have? How much time do you want to spend on an operation like that? But if, if you built a system like this with fencing in the open spaces and paddock shifted your chickens through this orchard, you start to turbocharge the crap out of it. So does that work? doesn't work for everybody. So I don't think you would design it into the base system, but you would think about it. So there's so much more to this, and I'm going to be putting a lot of, pencil sharpened pencils to a lot of papers to figure out a lot more about it in the future but I did want to introduce you to the concept and say hey I could use help with this man if there's somebody that really wants to work on this especially someone in Texas North Texas that wants to maybe trial this get in touch with me you need at least an acre I think and not an acre with a house and a driveway I mean I think you need at least an acre here of plantable space reasonable soil quality that type of thing because I can't do it here this is not the right environment for it and my my plan for this property is radically different than this but I think it makes a lot of sense and if someone's you know within uh, a couple hours drive of me and has got the right setup for it we might talk uh, about doing this as like a permaethos project for development I don't know we'll have to see anyway with that this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the survival podcast Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. Thank you.
Shut it.